Demise, the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today the writing of Lynn Campbell and Tom Carter, who I don't know. However, I do know of Tom Carter, and I can go into that in a little bit, but I am doing something on here that is kind of unprecedented for this podcast. Yes, I had an episode on REM, but... I am going to be reading parts of Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell. However, I wanted to take the time to kind of get into my journey as a Glenn Campbell fan and talk about his career and how he's affected my life and how I've seen him affect other people's lives, etc., etc., just an overview of Glenn Campbell and how I feel that even though at one point he was one of the biggest stars in the world, and yes, several of his songs are still in you know the top 30 FM tracks of all time. I mean, he's gotten so much radio play throughout the years. However, through my experiences with the fan base, as well as just being a Glenn Campbell fan who's, you know, born in the 90s, I perceive him a little differently than older fans, and I perceive the phenomenon around him a little differently. So if you're listening to this and you're an older fan, I guess I could technically qualify as an older fan, but I don't like to think that. But I wasn't around during his heyday, let's just say that. I was around when he was doing Time Life commercials. So... That's something to keep in mind. As usual, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. Typically what I do is I talk for the first 10 minutes and then I get into the material, but today I think I want to just get into the material. So briefly, I will tell you, if you would like to support the podcast, I don't make any money from this podcast. So if you want to support the podcast, you can go buy my books. Search for Patrick Attaway on Amazon. You will find my books for Kindle for 99 cents. If you want paperbacks, there are paperbacks on there. I just released a paperback book. It's exclusively paperback called Parked in the Flowerbed. And it's a poetry compendium of my last four poetry books. Yeah, there are some copies of my previous paperbacks for those poetry books that are still available because Amazon does have a limited supply of them. But for all intents and purposes, they're out of print. So if you want a physical copy of my poetry books, you have to buy the two compendiums that I have out. Otherwise, you can just buy them on Kindle. I'm also a musician, influenced by Glenn Campbell, I might add. However, you can find my music on Spotify or wherever you stream music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. I have ambient, singer-songwriter, jazz, whatever you want to listen to. But let's just stop talking about me, and let's start talking about me and Glenn Campbell. When I was a kid, Glenn Campbell was no longer a big star. He was someone who was already into his playing country fairs phase of his life. Because that's what he, he started doing in the 80s. And he did have a stint in Branson, sure. But he wasn't making albums that were selling anymore. Not the way they used to. 
at the very least. He wasn't being played on the radio unless it was an older song, etc., etc. You get where I'm going with this. The last notable thing he did during my lifetime before they attempted to have a comeback was Rockadoodle. And I have not seen that movie since I was very young. I don't even know if I've ever seen it all the way through, honestly. But he apparently does the voice of a singing rooster. While my mother has always liked Glenn Campbell, she was never a super fan. You know, she never owned one of his albums when she was growing up. And for all intents and purposes, I don't think she knew anyone who owned one of his albums. See, growing in the in the rural South, we're an hour outside of of Atlanta, which is a bigger distance without internet and without, you know, a lot of people doing commutes like in the sixties and seventies when my mother was growing up. The thing is, is that people didn't think of Glenn Campbell as a country artist. And I being someone who owns most of his albums on vinyl, I own a lot of his albums on CD. I have communicated with other Glenn Campbell fans I know someone who is pretty much the scholar on Glenn Campbell. He's the first person to ever compile the entire Glenn Campbell discography, which he says Tom Carter stole from him, which you can't copyright or trademark someone else's discography, but he put in the work and it was published in a magazine and Tom Carter put that in the book. So that was the first time there was a major publication of Glenn Campbell's discography. It's now on the website, I'm sure, and it's sort of on Wikipedia. But the guy who who has compiled a lot of the information on Glenn Campbell on Wikipedia is a real son of a bitch. I'll just go ahead and say that. People in the small fan circles know him as being just a pain in the ass. I mean, he thinks he knows everything, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, I'm not here to talk about him. When you bring up Glenn Campbell to my grandmother, for instance, someone who grew up in Alabama and then moved to Georgia, someone who experienced country music on a firsthand basis, someone who actually listened to the Grand Ole Opry every night it came on, on a radio, who didn't have a television, etc., etc., she never considered Glenn Campbell country music either. The country music label that has been bestowed upon Glenn Campbell is solely because before the 80s, when he would chart, he would actually chart on country charts. But that doesn't make you a country artist. See, if you go listen to a great podcast by Tyler Mahan Co. called Cocaine and Rhinestones, you will hear a brief history of the Billboard charts. And the reality of the Billboard charts is that country and Western music was labeled as such because that was the music that appealed to poor white people. Just like Rhythm and Blues, that chart was music that was designated for poor black people. It was a segregated way of discerning what was marketable to these two groups of people. So for an artist to chart on country radio the the whole notion of a country pop existing which i'm not going to refute that country pop exists but country music is pop music it's just pop music for white people essentially because when you think about pop music during that time 
I would think of Frank Sinatra, someone who Glenn Campbell played with. Glenn Campbell played with so many different artists on their records. He was a session guitar player. He played with the Beach Boys. He played with the Monkees. He played with Merle Haggard. He played with Elvis. There's a huge list of all the sessions and all the songs he's played on. And he was the American guitar player for a while in Los Angeles. He was analogous to Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page was a huge session player in the 60s in Britain. So think about that for a second. The biggest difference between Glenn and Jimmy Page is that Glenn was pursuing a solo career throughout almost the entire decade of the 60s, even though he says in Rhinestone Cowboy, when he came to Los Angeles, he just wanted to play guitar. And he thinks that if he had known when he got there that he would eventually try becoming more of a singer, he would have been disappointed in himself. At the top of the pile of CDs that I brought in here, much like my REM episode where I looked through the CDs, I'm not going to do that for this whole episode, by the way. I have what is considered the first real Glenn Campbell album. And it's not a solo album. It's Glenn Campbell and the Green River Boys. It's Big Bluegrass Special. And it's a bluegrass album. And when I played this for my grandmother, she was like, see, Glenn Campbell used to be real country. But see, people really didn't know Glenn Campbell until an album that's at the bottom of my pile here called Gentle on My Mind. And this was actually one of the first albums of his that I ever bought. My CDs are beat to hell. The CDs themselves are fine, but the cases are fucked up. So when I got this album, I was expecting more guitar because... When I listened to live Glenn Campbell, he would play a bunch of solos and do improvs and shit like that. But this is very much a pop folk singer style album. And it was pretty common in the 60s and early 70s to have the white guy with a guitar with a vague background of something. Sometimes they were outside standing on a railroad or something, but... This is pretty typical for the time period. The difference is that he was a major label artist. He's with Capitol Records. He's recording in the same studio as the Beach Boys and Merle Haggard. So to start things off, he's got Gentle on My Mind, which is the big hit. He didn't write any of these songs, though. I thought that Glenn Campbell was a singer-songwriter when I was very young when I saw him in True Grit. And I thought that he would have written some of his big hits, but no, he didn't write any of his big hits. He didn't even contribute to them. Now that's not to say that he never wrote anything, but for the most part, he was a guy who sang other people's songs. And because he was such a talented artist, he made hits out of them. I mean, gentle on my mind was not as big of a hit as when the original writer put it out there, John Hartford. And then Catch the Wind. That is not a hit, but it's a great song. It's over. Bowling Green, Just Another Man, You're My World. The world I used to know without her, Mary in the Morning, Love Me as Though There Were No Tomorrow, and then Roy Orbison's Crying. I mean, this is an album. But it's kind of strange because, for one thing, you could think, well, maybe this is just filler to sell the single, you know, because there was a lot of that going on, not only in 60s pop music, but throughout several decades of country music as well. And Gentle on My Mind charted on 
country charts, I'm pretty sure. But it's not a country song. Yes, it has elements of country music. I'm pretty sure there's a banjo solo in there. But I, I, I cannot call it a country album, just like I can't call Rhinestone Cowboy a country album. Rhinestone Cowboy is not a country album. Rhinestone Cowboy is not a country song. It is a singer-songwriter style song that's written about a guy who would appeal to a country audience, but it's definitely more of a pop song. In the 70s, Glenn was working with session musicians who were also working with Boss Skaggs and Steely Dan. He has more in common with Boss Skaggs than he does Johnny Cash or Merle Haggard, although it's worth noting that Johnny Cash didn't start out as a country artist. I don't know that Merle would necessarily think of himself as starting out as a country artist either. I don't think Waylon Jennings would have. Uh, I don't think Willie Nelson would have. And someone like Willie, for instance, recorded an album like Stardust, which is considered one of the best country albums of all time. It is one of the best albums of all time. But those are pop standards recorded by a quote-unquote country artist. And what's interesting is that you don't have to be a country fan to enjoy them. So what does that really say about country music? Because that's not an album that's full of steel guitars and fiddles and... You know what I'm talking about? There's more to country music than that, of course. But I'm trying to make the point that Glenn was beyond genre. Glenn was just putting music out there that he liked because make no mistake about it. When he put an album like basic out in the late seventies, this was a, a project that he was fully behind no filler tracks. It was an album akin to something like the Beatles revolver or pet sounds in the sense that it was one complete thought. I'm not saying that it's as good as those albums. I'm not saying that it sounds anything like those albums. I'm saying this was a legitimate statement from an artist. And that's something that people don't really think of Glenn Campbell as being. They think of him as being the guy who was on the Glenn Campbell show, who played guitar and sang silly songs sometimes. He was friends with Olivia Newton-John, shit like that. They might even think of him as being the guy who was forced out on tour by his family because he has Alzheimer's and they needed to make more money out of him before he died. There was actually going to be a book that was released by his daughter, Debbie, that was condemning Glenn Campbell's wife and all of the stuff that went on during that time period before his death because there was a point where she wasn't allowed to see him anymore. There was a point where she was no longer on tour with him anymore and she'd been touring with him for decades. She was a big part of his show. She was part of the family and then she got sidelined by his newer children and his new wife. Well, newer wife. They were honestly... His wife, to give her credit, she was with him longer than any other woman. I really didn't care for the last two Glenn Campbell albums, but I did really like Meet Glenn Campbell, which was his attempt at putting out a 
kind of late stage Johnny Cash style album where you had an older artist who was re-recording newer stuff. So he did songs by the Foo Fighters, Green Day, Lou Reed, stuff like that. And it was a good album. However, it flopped. It really flopped. It did not get him the kind of recognition that Johnny Cash got. It didn't get him even the kind of recognition that Donovan got when he did the same thing. It really just kind of appealed to his current fans. And that was it. There was a time where I couldn't even find it in Walmart. I mean, there was a lot of promotion put into it and then nothing. I remember there being videos of his sessions that were on AOL. I remember that very well. I remember those videos because they were trying to promote it online. They were trying to promote it on his website, on the message board. But it just, it did not have the result that they were, they were looking for. And what was even more funny about it to me is that I'm pretty sure they put like gentle on my mind and rhinestone cowboy as bonus tracks on it or something. It was really a shameful attempt at marketing. All things considered, this was a guy who really should have just kept going in the capacity that he was going because despite the fact that I like meet Glenn Campbell and despite the fact that I appreciate that he was trying to remain relevant in the public consciousness. You have to remember that in the eighties and I'm talking about two decades before meet Glenn Campbell came out, he was already yesterday's news and he was still putting out great material. So what was really left for him to do? Because he was trying to appeal to a younger audience, remind people, hey, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm not just a legacy act. Well, when you do that for so long and you try to cross over to country music in the 80s like he did and then to gospel or Christian contemporary music like he did in the 90s, you'll see that these attempts to remain relevant didn't work out and they actually did a lot of damage to his public image, I think. And then the DUI situation, I mean, that was bad because he, he told the police officer who arrested him, don't you know who I am? Now you may think that I'm being too critical of Glenn Campbell when realistically there's a lot to talk about here and he was not a perfect person If you really want a good, dirty story about him, go read Tanya Tucker's autobiography because she dated him when she was quite young. They had a very highly publicized relationship in the late 70s, early 80s. And they were subject of tabloids, and his albums, in terms of sales, were really stagnating. But he was still a public figure, you know. But he was a public figure. He was dating someone very young. It honestly didn't help that Tanya Tucker was already the subject of controversy because she was breaking the boundaries of country music as well. Because, you know, when she got up on stage to do 
not fade away by Buddy Holly of the Grand Ole Opry. And she dressed the way that she did. She had that album out where she was looking all sexy and young on the cover. Well, that did not really sit well with a lot of country fans. So people saw her as being really out there, really reckless. And then she was with this guy who used to sing Gentle On My Mind. When I bought this book, I was in high school and I already, I'd already bought a bunch of Glenn Campbell albums on CD. You couldn't find most of his discography on CD at that point. And I don't think you can anymore, honestly. All of it's on Spotify now. And in 2017, when I first got a Spotify account, who do you think I added first? Glenn Campbell was one of the first artists I favorited most of his albums for, and I revisited his catalog and la-di-da. I don't consider most celebrity autobiographies, especially ones with ghostwriters, and at least Tom Carter's credited, but I don't consider most of them real literature. I really don't. They're usually something, a product that is sold to people, and yes, you can read that product, but it's not something with quality writing most of the time, and people tend to forget about them a year later. You know, that whole Jeanette McCurdy book with the polarizing title, I'm glad that my mom's dead or whatever. That is what I'm talking about. No one's going to be talking about that book in five years. But Glenn Campbell's autobiography was seriously forgotten about it and even out of print. So I bought a used copy and it's a hardback. The first line of this book is the fish and coral glistened brightly in the ice blue Pacific water off Hawaii. That's not something that Glenn Campbell would write. So that's what we're getting into here. This is Tom Carter speaking on behalf of Glenn Campbell. Now, yes, these are generally written through a series of interviews where the ghost writer gets information from the person they're writing for, and then they put it together. And already, as an author and as someone who studied literature, this is something that I can tell the ghostwriter, Tom Carter, put way too much of himself into. So that's what we're getting into. At 26, I just learned to snorkel. I was on a break from a show with Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys, and Jody Miller. The sun and surf were a welcome change from the confusion of a television studio. That goes to show you what kind of artist Glenn Campbell was when most people today who are younger than me wouldn't know who Jan and Dean or Jody Miller are. With each dive, I plunged farther and held my breath longer. I'd bolt for the top of the ocean, exhale hard, inhale, and dive again. I was amazed at how clearly I could see even tiny grains of sand along the ocean floor. The water was like a window through which the sun shone 15 feet beneath the surface. Again, this is not Glenn Campbell writing this. So, I don't know why Tom Carter chose to open this with a scene of Glenn Campbell snorkeling and admiring a tiny grain of sand. But this is, all I can see is Tom Carter masturbating here. I'm like a lot of entertainers, especially the ones who sing country music or the blues. I grew up poor. 
I'm not talking about the kind of poverty in which someone on a limited income can't pay his bills or gets behind on his rent or doesn't have as many clothes as he would like and is embarrassed by the way he looks. None of that is pleasant. I went through that when I was a teenager trying to make it on my own and right after I got married at 17. The kind of poverty I knew as a boy wasn't really any kind of living. It was merely existing. We didn't just endure poverty. We wore it. You could see it in the distant, fearful stare of my parents. On the survival scale, my family was just a step above the animals that we ate to stay alive. A few times we were hungry simply because there wasn't enough food for a family of 12, although some of the older children had left home by the time the youngest was born. There were times I went to school and didn't go outside at recess because I was cold and had no coat. I was born on April 22, 1936, when the rural South was reeling from the Great Depression. In the city, poor people stood in bread lines and went to soup kitchens, but there were no such luxuries in Arkansas. Most celebrity autobiographies begin this way, where they talk about their modest beginnings, etc., etc., and literally nobody fucking cares about it, and I don't know why people go into detail about their childhoods this way when, I mean, there was nothing really unique about the way Glenn Campbell grew up. Again, I'm not critiquing Glenn Campbell. I'm more critiquing Tom Carter. Chapter 4 is where things really pick up, and it's one thing to go into Glenn's childhood and talk about, you know, his first guitar and whatever, but realistically speaking, if I were the editor of this, I would say start things at chapter four. I was developing a regular following at the Chesterfield Club in Albuquerque because of the exposure I was getting on television and as a nightclub singer. Singing in Uncle Dick's Bill's band at 15 marked the first time I encountered people who knew my songs by title and me by name. I felt pretty important when people came by just to see me and say such things as, I heard you sing San Antonio Rose last week, and I brought my girlfriend out tonight so she can hear your version. Up to now, I had felt like a faceless entertainer, a fixture on the stage like a microphone or an instrument. Self-confidence wasn't my strong suit. I began to be aware of one regular customer, a pretty young girl named Diane. I don't remember what she wore, although I recall my own wardrobe of cowboy shirt and trousers, string tie, and western hat. Diane was always with her mother whenever she was inside the club, as the house rules stipulated. Her mother was a friend of my Uncle Dick, and I recall visiting Diane regularly, but I can't remember how long I waited before asking her on a date. I do remember how old she was when she told me she was pregnant. She was 15. I'm going to tell you something that is somewhat related to this, and it's it's to a point in my life where I can talk about this to an extent. So I too became sexually active in my mid teenage years. And I used to get very paranoid about getting my girlfriend pregnant. I mean, I was giving myself panic attacks. So why, why, why keep having sex, Patrick? Well, it's sex. And honestly, I think I was too sexually active at a young age and I'd already gone through some trauma before then, before I 
officially lost my virginity, but I really just traumatized myself more. So when I would be at home and I would pray to God that I had not gotten my girlfriend pregnant, a lot of times I would play this song by Glenn Campbell called No Vacancy in My Head. And instead of no vacancy, I'd say no pregnancy, no pregnancy. I'd broken Miss Tiny's rule and sneaked her into my hotel room. Diane was the first girl with whom I'd ever had sex, and according to the calendar, she got pregnant the first time we slept together. I had not used protection because I'd never heard about it. My dad had given this tired old lecture about birds and the bees. He told us how we could make babies. He never told us how we could prevent making them. I had known firsthand what it was like to be a traveler moving on a wing in a prayer. I had known hunger and cold, but I hadn't really known what it was like to be a man. Diane's pregnancy changed me from an aging child to a young grown-up and eliminated forever my carefree days of adolescence. Living in Mrs. Tiny's hotel, I had barely been able to provide for myself. Suddenly, I was expected to provide for three. My terror was succeeded only by my guilt. I had gotten a girl pregnant out of wedlock. My act was a direct contradiction to my conservative religious upbringing. I felt like a man branded with the symbol of sin. I just knew God was mad at me and thought a lot more about his anger than his compassion. At a time when I needed to think clearly, my mind was clouded. I felt like a sinner's sinner. I'm going to go into a brief rant about this statement. So, if God is real, and I believe in God, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, I am not an atheist, I'm not an agnostic, but I'm also not a Christian. But I do believe in a God. And my issue with this rationale, because it's a rationale that plagued me as a young man, is that it would be a terrible thing to get a woman pregnant out of wedlock. Not just because you would be obligated to be with her in some capacity for the rest of your life, but because it would just ruin your life. You'd have to drop out of high school and get a job and provide for this child, etc., etc., stuff like that. And the way that this is being framed is that a child is a punishment for a sinful act. When in reality, wouldn't a child be a good thing? I mean, from a Christian perspective, a lot of these people who are against abortion, who think that all life matters, then why would a baby be a bad thing? Why would a baby be a symbol for sin? Why would a baby be something that would mark someone for the rest of their life? And it clearly didn't with Glenn Campbell, even though I believe that this was his oldest daughter, Debbie, who I just spoke about. And to be fair, he did sideline her in his life for a little while there. And then they kind of came back together when she joined his touring band. But I mean, he got out of that scot-free as far as I'm concerned. This young woman, Diane and Debbie are the ones who endured any amount of suffering for this interaction. As I look back on my first two marriages, I think I can cite a reason for their failures. I was the male. 
but not the man of those households. I should have taken command more than I did. I was too passive and often let the women run over me. They got their way, but they probably also lost respect for me. Already we can see that Glenn Campbell does not have the best notion of how a a marriage should be or how a relationship between a man and a woman should be for that matter. And for him to say, I was too passive and I let them run over me and yet the marriages failed and he went on to do things like date Tanya Tucker. Well, I don't know that you can place the blame on Diane. And he puts his second wife on blast in the beginning of chapter 5. I don't want to talk about Glenn Campbell for his book, said Billie Jean Campbell, my former wife. I don't even want my name in it. Put my name in it and I'll sue you. The words were spoken via telephone to Tom Carter, who helped me write this book. I'd asked Tom to call Billy for information regarding our 16-year marriage. Holy shit. She told Tom that I had been a bad father and blamed me for one of our children's legal problems. The child was awaiting sentencing for a forgery conviction in California that Billy said related to his drug problem. She said that was my fault, too. Well... I don't know that we can say it's not Glenn Campbell's fault, but we also can't necessarily say that it is Glenn Campbell's fault. But it sounds like he's trying to, you know, distance himself from his own child, especially since he's not even naming that child. She went on to say that I'd neglected my children from each of my marriages. This is probably true. She said I gave them nothing but money and accused me of trying to buy their love. She even refused to help Tom construct the chronology of our relationship. She wouldn't tell him how or where we met. She told him that she was tape recording her conversation with him and added that she was prepared to sue him and me if I even told people we had been married. I can't tell people. They already know. I'm truly sorry that she felt the way she did. (laughs) I won't debate her accusations, although I certainly could. I'll only say that the things I do and the things I once did are not the same. I'm a new man inside my old body. I have been forgiven by God for my transgressions and hope that Billy and others I might have wronged have forgiven me too. Billy died on February 2nd, 1993 of cancer. Wow. There's no way I can write about my history and not talk about the woman to whom I was married longer than any other. Billy was a good person and very strong-willed. She was a devoted mother with whom I had differences regarding our children's discipline. I should have been more assertive as a husband and father. Again, wow. I met the former Billy Jean Nunley in 1959 while playing at the Hitching Post in Albuquerque. After my divorce, I was in no hurry to become seriously involved with anyone. I sure wasn't looking for a wife when I began to notice a girl named Nancy who came into the club often and was usually accompanied by Billy. This man, Glenn Campbell, will not even lie and say that he thought Billy was the most beautiful woman in the world or some shit. He's talking about her friend first. He noticed her friend first. He makes it seem like Billy was her sidekick. Knowing Billy, as I later did, I suspect she began flirting with me simply out of meanness toward Nancy. Billy was quite spirited, as anyone who knew her would agree. 
Billy had recently moved to Albuquerque from her home in Carlsbad, New Mexico. After graduating from a beauty school, she used to prance in front of the bandstand to get my attention, and I knew it. I thought she wanted me to ask her to dance, so I did, and she declined. I asked several times before she consented. You know, the way that men used to court women is generally frowned upon these days. If you keep asking a woman out over and over and over again, people generally refer to it as sexual harassment. You pretty much know where this is going, okay? So Billy and Glenn got divorced in the mid-70s, and shortly after, he married his third wife, Sarah, who was a smoking hottie, let me tell you. And then he dated Tanya Tucker, and then he met his wife, Kim, and he was married to her from 2000, not 2000, 1982 until his death in 2017. In 1961, I met a talented man of another variety. Stan Schneider helped me with my income tax return that year. He has prepared my return annually ever since. He eventually became my business and personal manager. He runs my affairs to this day. Our relationship's longevity is a testament to his skill and integrity. He is one of the most honest men I've ever known. I met a lot of outstanding talent on my way up. There probably never was a time when I brushed shoulders with more legends than when I worked as a studio musician. I played for scale $65 for a three-hour session and sometimes double as a session leader. I was employed by such successful record producers in Hollywood as Jimmy Bowen and Quincy Jones. It took me a while to fall in the click of studio players, but once I did, my talent sustained me and my telephone rang regularly. In 1963, my instrumentals and vocals were heard on 586 recorded songs. Each of these sessions, with a few exceptions, were recorded live, meaning there was no electronic overdubbing. Records today are usually recorded one voice or instrument at a time. In the the mid-1960s, we played and sang simultaneously during the recording. Quincy Jones first used me to play a goofy acoustic lead similar to Miller's and Dang Me. The song was for the soundtrack of a motion picture called In the Heat of the Night. A policeman drops a dime into a jukebox and I sing Bow-Legged Polly in a Knock-Kneed Paul. It was my first soundtrack recording and it was certainly among the less distinguished, but it got me into the Jones family of players. He called me to play several times afterward. I was still trying to get accustomed to being around some of the American legends. I would try to act cool around them as though I were not overly impressed, but the fact is, is I was often envious and starstruck. I had to act like an associate, not a fan, when I played with these greats. Many times, the star would enter the studio and the recording would begin without any conversation. Some of these people were just being respectful of the studio clock whose ticking translated into money. Others didn't talk to the musicians simply because they were snobs. One of the earliest thrills came when Bowen called me to play rhythm guitar in a Frank Sinatra session. I'd been in Hollywood about three years, but there was still more Arkansas than California in me. Being indirectly summoned by Sinatra was like a soldier being summoned by General George Patton. I tried but failed to contain my awe. I wasn't intimidated just overwhelmed. 
Sinatra has been at the top of the entertainment world since 1942, when Benny Goodman introduced him as an added attraction at the Paramount Theater in New York City. In show business, there is no arguing with tenure. His dreamy voice was vocal satin. I was one of four guitarists, and the only one to play an E-flat with a capo. Strangers in the Night was to become a classic. We rehearsed the song 15 times before Sinatra arrived. Either he was late or Bowen had told him a later time than he had told the rest of us, so no one dared to inquire. We recorded only three versions or takes when Bowen stopped the session and selected the first rendition. The multi-million copy version of that song was recorded on the first take. Bowen is a master. Jimmy Bowen, for those of you who are unaware is still kind of a big deal in the sense that he's brought so many artists to the forefront of um, music, one of them being Garth Brooks. And Mojo Nixon mentions him by name in a song called Let's Burn Old Nashville Down. Jimmy Bowen is responsible for Glenn Campbell. He's responsible for other acts as well, but he will always be known as the guy who brought Garth Brooks into the world. There were perhaps 30 musicians in the studio that day, including a string section. So who should wind up standing right next to Sinatra's singing booth? Me. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. I couldn't believe that I was in the same room, much less that I was playing for him. Each time I looked at him, he was already looking at me. I thought he was impressed with my playing. And that he was taking note that I was the only guitarist using a capo. I was positive I'd impressed him, particularly after I saw him talking to Bowen and looking in my direction after the session. Bowen, I asked. Was Frank talking about me? Yes. What did he say? I asked anxiously. He wanted to know who the fag guitar player was. Frank said you never stopped looking at him and he thought you were lusting. By the way, the word fag is in the book. I did not put that in. Uh, Sinatra except to say hello, didn't talk to many people in the studio that day. When I met him, years later, he told me that he had forgotten the faces of the musicians at the Strangers in the Night session, perhaps his second most popular song after My Way. I was very impressed with Elvis. First impressions are the most lasting, and Elvis made his on the national consciousness in 1956 as a hip-swinging ambassador of rock and roll on the Ed Sullivan Show. I didn't know that we needed a backstory on Elvis, so much attention was paid to Elvis's popularity and gyrations that his singing talent was often overlooked. He had tone, power, and range. Again, we don't need this information on Elvis Presley, Tom Carter. I knew him in his pre-drug days when he was dynamic. I played with him on the soundtrack for Viva Las Vegas, a motion picture co-starring Anne Margaret. So, essentially, Glenn Campbell played with Elvis during the period that most people don't like him for. The recording sessions would often, <laughs> would sometimes last all day, after which Elvis would go to a nearby nightclub where he met his cronies who had been working on the movie. One of the most impressive things about Elvis was how much he remembered. I met him five years earlier in Albuquerque and he actually recalled it. A million miles and a hundred songs had passed through his life since our initial meeting, but he recalled it in precise detail. I was flattered. How could I forget it, man? He said. I thought I was going to die. Elvis had played in a then-new armory in 1957 as the opening act for Fair and Young. 
I was still playing the noon radio show and Farron came over to plug in his uh, Saturday night concert with some new kid named Presley. He invited my band and me to the show. This is boring. By the way, my grandfather, my great grandfather, um, his name was Ray. He was once Elvis Presley's bodyguard on a military base because Elvis went from military base to military base to do shows. And um, because of his popularity, they couldn't figure out a way to get him out of there without him being recognized. And allegedly, this is the story that he told me, he had a ball cap and it was a Marine Corps ball cap and he put it on Elvis's head to disguise his hair and they put him in a car, told him to face down and they went out the back. What really disappoints me about this book is that it doesn't get into the nitty gritty of the most interesting aspects of Glenn Campbell's life. You know, I would love to hear, you could probably write an entire book on his time in the Beach Boys, for instance. He was, uh, yes, he played on Pet Sounds, but I think, but he also was touring with them as Brian Wilson's replacement because Brian Wilson didn't like touring anymore. So Glenn Campbell played bass and sang Brian Wilson's parts. That takes a lot of talent for one thing, but also he was in the fucking Beach Boys. The Beach Boys alone, from my perspective, are already not as appreciated as they should be. And I think largely because instead of breaking up early on in their career like the Beatles did, and you know, that you could largely attribute to their early success of their early sound versus the more creative artistic side of Brian Wilson in the later 60s. I think that people tend to forget that the Beatles started out very much the same way that the Beach Boys did in playing basically pop rock music. And then they got into more psychedelic stuff. But the Beach Boys kept recording albums into the 70s and even you know some despicable ones in the 80s. And I think that Keeping the Summer Alive is their last good album, and that came out in 78. I mean, that already is a longer span of good music than the the, the Beatles put out. You know, they were together for, what, eight years, maybe? Maybe less? I mean, the Beatles were a blip in terms of the span of time compared to the Beach Boys, and Glenn Campbell was part of that. He not only played on songs like Help Me Rhonda, he also played with them in the band, and he could have been the next Bruce Johnson. (laughs) You know, he could have been that guy. I think that this episode has gone on long enough, honestly. I mean, what's really unfortunate about Glenn's career, and also I think his life, is that... It didn't end the way it was supposed to. And what disappoints me is that people didn't really respond to the music that he was putting out in the 80s as much. And I think he put out some of his best stuff in the 80s. I mean, Unconditional Love is a great album. And it was also ahead of its time in in terms of production and what other artists in the the nineties would end up doing Steve. Um, what the fuck? I want to say Steve Winwood. It's not Steve Winwood. The guy who plays guitar, 
<laughs> and then there's Vince Gill, even to an extent, uh, Brooks and Dunn. Stuff that he was doing on Unconditional Love, other people ended up doing more of later on. But, you know, you don't know anyone who listens to Unconditional Love. And his early albums of that decade, like Old Hometown, they're great. I mean, he was still putting out great music three decades into his career. And what's funny about that is that, yeah, he had another TV show in the 80s that lasted for a minute. But if you look at his set list from back then, he was playing the old stuff. I mean, he was already a legacy act. I don't know what I'm covering next week, okay? But I do appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed this and you like my my reading voice, go check out the Nero series that I did on the podcast. I composed the soundtrack for it as well. And I would love for more people to listen to it. If you don't want to shell out money for my books or listen to my music, that would be another way to support me. Listening to more of the podcast, sharing it with friends, etc. Thank you so much for listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. Have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.